gotta go. I am a god. Okay. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 121, Jennifer's Body. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, a huge welcome back to all of you wonderful, amazing returning listeners and welcome all of you brand new listeners to this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. No matter how you found this podcast, I am so grateful that you are here for this particular episode on Jennifer's Body. And I'm just going to jump straight in on this particular episode because joining me is a very special guest. She is a journalist, an author, a podcaster. You will know her from Empire as well as her book, Women vs. Hollywood, and the associated podcast, Women vs. Hollywood. A huge welcome to Verbal Diorama to the incomparable Helen O'Hara. Welcome, Helen. (laughs) Thrilled to be here. Hello. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're here to talk about this particular movie. Mm, Me too, yeah. Because (laughs) this is going to be, I think, a very, very interesting discussion. Mm. And this is one of the reasons why I scouted you down, (laughs) literally hunted you like Jennifer Hunt's boys in this movie to come on for this episode. Because I think you are pretty much the perfect person to have on an episode of this podcast to talk about a film that is very female-led that, let's be honest, a lot of people didn't really appreciate at the time, but the movie has since started to find a little bit more appreciation, which is something that I think we can talk about Mm. in a little bit. something cute okay you always do what jennifer tells you to do it's just that i like the same things that she likes hey jennifer you look really pretty why don't you just come by my place well this is random this isn't really your house is it we can play mommy and daddy no way (laughs) we always share your bed when we have slumber parties Jennifer's evil. I know. No, I mean, she's actually evil. Not high school evil. Chip is looking really cute to me lately. How is he tasting these days? You are never a good friend. You could have anybody that you want. Hi, Chip. You're killing people. No, I'm killing boys. Are you scared? I only murdered boys. I go both ways. I will finish you if I have to. Okay. 
You can barely finish gym class. In Devil's Kettle, Minnesota, shy student Needy idolises her beautiful cheerleader friend Jennifer. They attend a performance of the rock band Low Shoulder at a bar and the band leader overhears that Jennifer is a virgin. When the place is set on fire, Jennifer is taken by the band in their van. She later appears at Needy's home, covered in blood, throwing up a dark liquid, exhibiting weird behaviour. As their school mourns the victims of the fire, several male classmates of Jennifer and Needy are found murdered. Their bodies mutilated, and each time, Jennifer appears more radiant than ever. Needy discovers that Jennifer was sacrificed by the band members in a black magic ritual, but because Jennifer was not a virgin, she has been transformed into a flesh-eating succubus. We'll quickly run through the cast as well. Uh, Megan Fox as Jennifer Check, Amanda Seyfried as Needy Lesnicki, Johnny Simmons as Chip Dove, J.K. Simmons as Mr. Rob Lewski, Amy Sedaris as Tony Lesnicki, Adam Brody as Nikolai Wolf, and a pretty much brief cameo from who would become Chris Pratt as Roman. Jennifer's body was written by Diablo Cody and it was directed by Karen Kusama. And Diablo Cody first gained international recognition with her 2007 debut screenplay Juno, directed by Jason Reitman, starring Elliot Page and Michael Serra about a teenage girl named Juno's unplanned pregnancy and the subsequent adoption of her baby, as well as the relationships with the father of a child, with potential adoptive parents and with her own father and stepmother. Juno was an unexpected hit, both critically and financially, and won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, the BAFTA Award for Best Original Screenplay, the Independent Spirit Award for Best First Screenplay, and the Writers Guild of America Award for Best Original Screenplay. So there was a lot of pressure on Diablo Cody for her sophomoric screenplay, which would be Jennifer's Body. That would be produced by Juno director Jason Reitman, and this movie directed by Karin Kusama, Kasama had written and directed her debut feature Girl Fight in 2000 and in 2005 directed the actually quite underrated live action adaptation of Eon Flux starring Charlize Theron in the title role. That film had been ushered through production by Paramount Studio chief Sherry Lansing but during production she left which resulted in the film being recut and reworked with significant changes from Kasama's original vision. Following this experience, Kasama said she would never again work on a film which she didn't have control of the final cut. So Jennifer's body was postponed to avoid the 2007 Writers Guild of America strike and filming started in March 2008 in British Columbia. The waterfall scene was filmed at the real-life Devil's Kettle waterfall in Minnesota, which the VFX team created into a whirlpool. There are a remarkable amount of practical effects in this movie. VFX companies KB EFX Group and the Moving Picture Company handled the special effects. For the scene where Jennifer vomits a black substance onto Needy, that was simply chocolate syrup coming out of a rig, clamped to Fox's ear and starts projectiling as she bites on the trigger. Most effects start from a practical viewpoint and use sparing CG to enhance the effects, such as when Jennifer's jaw detaches like a snake. To create Jennifer's demonic mouth and jaw, they did this in five stages. Stage one was regular Jennifer. Stage two was using makeup to recess her eyes to make the otherwise otherworldly beautiful Megan Fox look like the rest of us normal looking people. Stage four was custom dentures, facial warping, recessing her eyes, adding a pinning effect to her irises and bringing her cheekbones down. And stage five was full jawbone detach. The appliance was attached to Fox's face. Her real jaw was green screened. 
So basically all the screen could see was the detachable jaw and then visual effects would add detail into her mouth. So I just wanted to quickly go through the production and I'll talk a little bit more towards the end of this episode about the financials and the critical reception at the time for this movie. But obviously this movie didn't do particularly well. It was a little bit of a financial disappointment. But as I mentioned at the start, this feels like a very kind of women versus Hollywood type of movie. Mm. And in your book, Women versus Hollywood, you don't actually mention Jennifer's body, but you do talk about Megan Fox a few times about her role in Transformers, the male gaze that she's subjected to. How do you feel about this movie specifically? Um, I was uh, I was a little bit mixed on it when I first saw it, and it's one of those ones that's kind of stuck with me weirdly and grown on me weirdly. Um, and I wonder if that's a certain amount of internalised uh, expectation of what a movie like this should be. Um, I, I, do th- I don't think it's a perfect movie, but I, I think a little bit of that might be just that it wasn't what I was expecting, you know? Um, so yeah, but I I do like it overall. I think it's funny. I think it's clever. I think it's original. It feels different, and it felt different at the time to anything else that was out there. It was very very hyped in advance, at least in my corner of of the world. You know, in in terms of sort of film nerds, we were very very excited about this because Diablo Cody obviously had knocked it out of the park with Juno. Um, Megan Fox seemed on the brink of megastardom. And and it just seemed like, oh, this is cool. This could be really something, you know. And we were still talking about Karen Kusama, I think, more in terms of girl fight than in terms of maybe Eon Flux, which I, I appreciate is not as bad as its reputation. I still don't think it's quite good. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's so so I was I was yeah. really really hyped about it in advance, and maybe overhyped, you know, maybe. Um, Maybe that was why I thought it was good but not great at the time. And it has grown on me and it has stuck with me. And I think the rest of the world has begun to catch up with it because I think it was really, really ahead of its time. And it maybe still is. I think it deals with a lot of stuff that we're still not comfortable talking about, that we're still not comfortable showing on screen. Um, It's still very unusual to have a female writer and a female director, especially if they're two different people on a major Hollywood Mm -hmm. movie. You know, that's still unusual. It's still unusual to have two female leads and really no significant male characters with the greatest of respect to the guys here. Come on. Like, yeah, they're not. They're not. You know, they're they're essentially the window dressing in the way that women usually are. So, um, so yeah, it, it, feels, it feels, you know, boundary pushing even now, I think. It's almost like you kind of expect that in the realms of Hollywood that if you say that something is too early... Mm-hmm you kind of like, well, why would 2009 be too early for a movie that is female-written, female-directed, mm. female-led, and a horror movie? It seems a bit ridiculous. that it. It's almost like some sort of internalised misogyny. Um, and even me, like, writing in my notes, I even wrote that, was 2009 too early, uh, you know, for this type of movie? But it just seems really bizarre that that we're even thinking I mean, that yeah. 2009 was too early for this. But just on the stats, we're still pretty much in the same place we were in 2009. The, the, the stats have not significantly changed. We just this year, I think, had the first best original screenplay solo female writer since Diablo Cody for Juno uh, winning an Oscar. You know, um, we've, you know, we've only just doubled the number of female director Oscar winners. Um, Female directors are still maybe 8% of Hollywood movies in a good year. Uh, Female writers are a little bit ahead, but not that far ahead. Uh, 
you know, we're st- we're still in a position where about twelve percent of movie leads are female. It is still a pretty dire picture. Um, I mm. think horror is actually in some ways ahead of the curve, and the reason for that is that one of the things that people don't think about or talk about or know is that horror is actually a very popular genre with women. And um, about 60% of, of many horror films' audiences in the cinema are female. And that is kind of unusual. Um, we are getting up there, actually. I mean, and across you know all genres. I think the, the days of you know teenage boys dominating the box office are, are kind of over because all, they all stay home and play computer games, if we're talking stereotypes. But, um, but yeah, I mean, women make up a huge percentage of the horror audience. And I think that's because female characters have actually had a better run of it there. There have been, you know, the final girls. There have been more female leads in horror movies than we maybe give the genre credit for. And yes, while they're put through the mill and put through horrific torture, usually, as standard, um, they are still important. They're treated as important people who, you know, have a role to play in the film and aren't just the girlfriend, aren't just the love interest, aren't just the scolding mother or the wise old witch or the cute kids. You know, they actually have characters and personalities and, and a role to play. So... So horror, I think it, it doesn't surprise me that it would happen in a horror movie. Uh, it maybe does surprise me that it's a big Hollywood, you know, horror movie produced by men um, who would, who nevertheless actually hired women to make it, which is which is good and rare. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned that about horror movies and women um, because there's a new Halloween movie. Mm. Um, I believe it's it's either just come out or it's just about to come out, and obviously that franchise started in 1978. With the same female character in, but pretty much all of them. I think maybe the third one she wasn't mm. in. But generally, Laurie Strode, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, has been in pretty much all of those movies yeah, Laura, as that character. Absolutely, and, or, and, or Scream, you know, the same with... Um, of course, yeah. Um, Scream, Scream's coming out, another Scream movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> another one. Another one. Um, so yeah, it, I, I appreciate what you're saying, that there is definitely a role for women mm. in horror, probably more so than there is in in any other genre apart from, you know, the the typical kind of rom-com genre. But even then, you would always have a male character who would be the counterpart to the female character. Very much. And Um, and also, you would usually have a male monster. Now, and that's the big difference in this film, is that the monster is also... Well, the victim is the monster in this movie. Um, and, And that's unusual and that's different. And that's why it's saying something... A little bit different. Look, you can argue that the the final girl stereotype is actually, if anything, more um, more true to life because you know the the amount of of women who are killed each year by male partners and and so on. Um, th- there is a lot of truth to the kind of the female the final girl stereotype um, in horror, but there's also truth to to you know the fact that women can be predators themselves, that they can snap and they can take up arms against a cruel world kind of thing, which is which is exactly what. Uh, Jennifer does here and ultimately I think we're going to talk spoilers right <laughs> I think ultimately what Needy does yeah, yeah, as yeah. well so there is yeah. um, both of them ultimately ha- have no other choice there is no other way to relate to this world um, except by acting in this way. It's a really fascinating movie and just kind of going back to your original point where you said that when you first saw it you know obviously it had been so overhyped at that time that it was you know perhaps not a disappointment but not really what you were expecting mm. and That was kind of very similar to me and my experience because when I first watched this movie, I actually remember not liking it. 
And I don't know what exactly I didn't like. Maybe it was because I was such a huge fan of Juno. And it was so dramatically different to Juno. Yeah. And maybe because it was, you know, 2009, I what probably wasn't as intelligent as I am now, even though I would never say that I'm that intelligent now. But maybe I just didn't get it. I, I do think it's... I think I was expecting funnier. I think they put the funniest lines in the trailer and the, and the funniest lines are very funny. But I think they put the funniest lines in the trailer and, you know, in do you know the whole film was like that? And so you were kind of yeah. expecting that. Even if it was scary, you still thought it would be funny the whole way through and it kind of isn't. So I think that was one aspect of it. I think I was a little bit frustrated with some of the storytelling and, and actually even watching it again this week, I'm still a little bit frustrated with aspects of it. Um that I don't think work brilliantly. You know, and, and Jennifer is a really hard character to root for. And needy as well to an extent, but especially Jennifer. You want to sympathise with her. You want to like her. You want to kind of go on this journey of kind of revenge with her. That's what you think it's going to be as a film when it starts. And then it isn't that. And it keeps refusing to be that. And I think that kind of um, frustration is is an element of why I didn't love it initially. You know, I wanted Jennifer to kind of be triumphant in some way, even though she's a monster and she's killing innocent people. Um, I, I just wanted her to, there to be a kind of a point to it or a message to that. And I think there ultimately mm -hmm. is when Needy sort of goes after the band, but I, I thought that was going to be coming from Jennifer herself and there was going to be an element yes. of, you know, payback to those guys, yeah. um, which she never got into. She never really engaged with that at all. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I always expected, I mean, maybe that's what, maybe that's the point. Maybe it's there to subvert yeah, our expectations. Yeah. But I always thought, well, if these are the guys that did this to Jennifer, then surely they're the guys that she wants to, yeah. to go after. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we can talk about things like the Me Too movement and stuff like that, because obviously it has been reevaluated in recent mm. years because of that movement. And, you know, then there's the additional, um, you know, hashtag not all men, uh, which kind of, crops up every so often and so I do feel from that point of view that the fact that Jennifer is going for these they're innocent in the context of the movie mm. in a sense that we we haven't seen them do anything you know outright yeah. bad or, or evil or anything like that but then it, it kind of frames it in the fact that in Jennifer's mind you know a man is a man or a boy is a boy like it, it doesn't she doesn't discriminate yeah, she makes no distinction uh, yeah but, but I do agree with you that I feel like maybe we could have sympathised a little bit more with the character of Jennifer mm. had she actually gone after the, the, the guys who did this to her in the first place. Yeah, and, and the only thing I can sort of think of to kind of explain that is to draw a Buffy parallel to, to talk about other, you know... Please, please draw a Buffy parallel. <laughs> I love Buffy. Other problematic <laughs> feminist uh, icons. But um, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the idea in, in Buffy was that basically when you become a vampire... Uh, a demon moves into your body and takes control. So it's not actually mm -hmm. you anymore. It's a demon doing a you impression, really. Yeah. Um, and that, they talk about that a little bit in Buffy, that, you know, people who, who want to become vampires. You remember there's um, your guy from Air the Roswell turns up and he, he he's determined to become a vampire. And Buffy's trying to explain to him, no, you won't become a vampire. A vampire will become you. Like, it's a different yeah. person, essentially. It's a different being, a different entity. It has no soul. And I think that's what we're, I think that's what we have to assume happens here, that Jennifer 
isn't Jennifer anymore and she doesn't have what might be Jennifer's priorities. She has a demon's priority. So maybe it's that, I guess. Um, and that's yeah. why it, Needy, when she gets a little bit demon powers without being a full demon, is the one who actually goes and, and says, no, okay, this is not right and I'm going to sort it out. So may maybe that's it, I guess. But But even aside from the whole, you know, like eating people thing even leaving that minor <laughs> issue aside like jennifer is not a nice person she is a bully she is vain she is shallow as uh, she's really mean to needy who is as far as we can see her only friend um and she does use people instinctively even you know from day one this whole idea of hell as a teenage girl you know she is pretty hellish from the get-go and and I think that's maybe why I struggled to identify with her. And I'm not saying that, oh, all female heroes or all heroes even need to be likable or relatable or anything else. I realize that's not the case. But I think it, it, it made me a little bit confused as to where, who I was supposed to be rooting for in all of this. And, and I feel like if she'd been, if she'd been that shallow, I could have gone with it if I'd felt like there was something more there. And I don't know that we got quite enough of that behind the shallowness, if you like, you know. Um, yeah. There's a little bit, there's little bits here and there. And you do get the impression that she's been kind of, she's suffered for looking as gorgeous as she does. You, you, mm -hmm. That is clear. And I think the film makes that point. But it, it's it's just a little murkier than I wanted it to be because you are trying to talk to a teenage audience here and you are trying to talk to a, a broad audience. This is not an art housey kind of movie. And so I think a little bit of clarity in those situations is, is kind of helpful, maybe. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is obviously Megan Fox. Mm. Probably one of the most beautiful women yeah. to have ever walked the earth. Um, and, and she obviously is an actor who I think that Hollywood has let down. A hundred percent agree. Uh, yeah. In so many situations. And I think that she's been let down mostly because she is that beautiful. Mm -hmm. Because it's almost like if you're that beautiful, then you can't be good at what you do. You can't have value. Yeah. You're not worthy because you're too beautiful. I think that's you know? spot on. I think we've. I, I think Angelina Jolie has suffered from that a little bit as well in her career. I think she got very, very lucky to get a, a great chewy, meaty part early in um, uh, *Girl Interrupted*. I think if she hadn't got mm -hmm. that, I think she'd be struggling with the same problem. I really do because I think you know she's she's a phenomenal actor, but she's so extraordinary looking. Like you can't cast her as a normal woman and, and sort of not normal woman, but you know, as the girl next door and yeah. not deal with the fact yeah. that she is absolutely stunning. And I think there's the same problem a little bit with, with Megan Fox, that she has really had to struggle to, to find roles that are kind of give her anything more to do than, you know, look gorgeous holding up the hood of a car. You know, I mean, she, she's recently, she did that and I'm forgetting the name, apologies, but she did a movie where she's a, a soldier fighting lions she's actually pretty good in it i think she's really good in a movie i don't like but um uh how to lose friends and alien alienate people i think she gives a really nuanced performance i think she's really really deep in that movie actually but again she's just so extraordinary looking what do you do with her and then of course you know one of the things i did talk about in the book is that she spoke out and she was perceived as being disloyal to the man who they perceived as having yeah. launched her career. And therefore, I think Hollywood has not maybe worked as hard as it could have done 
to give her opportunities to show that she can do more and she can, you know, be be a bigger star than this. I think they've been hesitant to, you know, to allow her to spread her wings because of that. There's always some uh, man in power, isn't there? That's always kind of, you know, clipping sort of the 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 young ingenue's wings. And I think that kind of just goes back to, you know, centuries mm. of of you know, men being in power in Hollywood. Um, and and I think with her especially, and I'll be completely honest, I've not seen that many of her movies. I can't claim that I've seen her in everything. Really, the only movies that I've probably seen that she's been in is, is this and the couple of Transformers movies. For her part in the Transformers movies, I mean, she was literally just male gaze window dressing in that movie. But I think there was always more to the character of Michaela mm-hmm. that Megan Fox wanted to kind of bring out yeah. because I think the character had some depth and something interesting to say, but I don't think Michael Bay is ever the sort of director who wants his beautiful young actresses to be in a position where they've got something to say. I agree with that. I think, so yeah. I kind of feel like Megan Fox is damned if she does and damned if she doesn't, Yeah, I, basically. I think that's true. I think that... Um... I think that's spot on. I think that, you know, if you watch, especially the first Transformers, which is a good film, unlike most of the sequels, um, you know, she she does bring some nuance and she does bring some edge to that character. And if you contrast her role in that film, as thin as it is, with the later female roles in Transformers movies, with the only exception of Bumblebee, um, you, you will see that she did bring something to that that other ingenues yeah. have not managed to bring to that franchise. You know, so she is capable of, I think, more than Hollywood credited her with. And it's, you know, full credit to to Diablo Cody and, and Jason Reitman. I think I think they had her on board nearly before they had Karen Kusama on board. I don't know how much uh, of a role she played in the casting, but, um, but full credit to everybody involved for getting her aboard. Because, of course, if you're going to cast, you know, the most beautiful girl in the school... Megan Fox, absolutely fantastic idea. And especially because she does have that edge to her. She's not a cutesy, you know, comforting kind of beautiful, a sort of um, uh, Jennifer Garner kind of beautiful, you know, really lovely, mm-hmm. lovely, beautiful person. But also can, you can believe that she'd hug you as soon as you walk into the room, you know. And I don't think Megan Fox looks like a hugger, uh, which is important for <laughs> Jennifer's body. I'm sure maybe she is. Yeah. Look, she could be the warmest person in the world. I don't mean any offence, but yeah, she doesn't look like a hugger is all I'm saying. Well, it's interesting you say that and and uh, and obviously comparing beautiful actors because in this movie there's also Amanda Seyfried <laughs> who is stunning, also incredibly beautiful. Mm. In your comparison, obviously, the, I feel like Amanda Seyfried would give you a hug. Yeah. yeah, she would. You're right. Yeah, <laughs> Because she kind of has that warmth. But it's, it's interesting because if you look at their careers, they kind of started out in Hollywood about the same sort of time. Yeah. And, you know, they're both incredibly beautiful. And they've both had very different Hollywood trajectories because Amanda Seyfried is, is kind of seen as, and I, I don't really want to use the term, but kind of a bit more acceptable level of beauty, mm. you know, acceptable in that, yeah, she's a, she's a good actress, she gets good roles, she's done all sorts, she's done Mamma Mia movies, she's done uh, movies like Mank, mm-hmm. and she, she seems to be the level of acceptable beauty that Hollywood will happily cast. Um, yeah, whereas Megan Fox is just, exactly that, yeah, absolutely, exactly. And I mean, I don't know whether it's, 
you know, Megan Fox is um, obviously had quite uh, publicised, um, you know, relationships in the press and all of that stuff. Whereas Amanda Seyfried just kind of hasn't really had that. But I do feel like perhaps that has clouded a lot of people's judgment mm-hmm. on Megan Fox that... I don't I mean, know. It's all speculation. The, the problem really, with that uh, is, I mean, again, going back to the Angelina Jolie thing, her private life was of enormous interest almost immediately that she broke through into Hollywood. And, you know, you can say, oh, well, they didn't, you know, stay home and hide it. No, they absolutely didn't. The, the problem with this, this thing is not everybody gets the same amount of attention for the same behavior, right? You know, um, Certain people in Hollywood get together, have entire relationships, keep it under the radar, and and no one's ever any the wiser, and nobody really knows anything about it, and it just sort of seems to blow over without, you know, much attention. Other people cannot drive out of their driveway without being hounded by paparazzi. And of course, you know, yes, let's not be naive, there are certain, absolutely certain rising stars who call the paps and say, I'm going to be at X cafe at 11am on Saturday or whatever. Um, so they can be sure of getting their picture taken, of course. But it is not something that you entirely control. It is not. Mm-hmm. And anyone who tells you otherwise is making excuses for the paparazzi's behaviour, usually. So I feel like with people like Megan Fox, with people like Angelina Jolie, with people like you know Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez, there are certain uh, celebrity private lives that are of more inherent interest to the the public and therefore to the paparazzi and therefore to the tabloids and you know Paris Hilton back in the day and all the rest and they get more attention almost no matter what they do and mm-hmm. I don't think it's always within their control I'm sure that yes some of them you know call them and let them know where they're going to be but I don't think it's always the case and so when her private life is so out there and so in the news. Um, I Again, I just think maybe that's because of, again, the way she looked, the fact that she was kind of a pin-up, the fact that she was kind of a lust object um, in a way that, as you say, an Amanda Seyfried isn't. I think that might be part of it. I think that might be... Um, there's this prurient interest that we all have in knowing the private lives of certain people and we don't kind of care about other people. Even yeah. though they're also beautiful and also famous and also yeah. wealthy and all, you know, and, and making lovey-dovey eyes at each other in restaurants. But some of them, we just, it doesn't capture the public imagination in the same way. And I honestly don't know why some people seem to hit this way. But I don't think it's always in their control. Okay. I can understand that. I guess I was just kind of trying to think of... An easy way to kind of explain away why you've got two beautiful women who both kind of started in Hollywood about the same time and are both viewed so dramatically differently. When they both have the same level of talent, Mm. it's just always kind of struck me. And I also read, um, and I'm I'm assuming that this is true, but I only read it on one website. And and researching verbal diorama like I do, I never take the opinion of one website as gospel Mm -hmm. usually because literally anyone could just make anything up. Um, you know, it's like Wikipedia, you know, don't take all of your research from Wikipedia because it's probably not true. <laughs> uh, newsflash, everyone, anyone can make a change on Wikipedia, literally anyone. But I did read that both Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried both class this, Jennifer's body, as their favourite thing that they've ever yeah. done. That maybe surprised me a little bit for Amanda Seyfried, given Mamma Mia, which 
kind of looks like it was a blast, <laughs> but... It really does. Who doesn't want to be on a Greek island somewhere shooting for however many months? I don't know. <laughs> um, but, but no, on another level, it, it doesn't surprise me at all because... Um, it's really cool. It's really unexpected. It's really exciting, a film like this. And I think as well, it must have been very unusual for them to be working with other women in this way. And of course, yes, Amanda yeah. Seyfried's in Mean Girls and is fabulous in it. But apart from that, you know, generally speaking, these women will mostly have been on set surrounded by men. And that can be great. You know, um, Megan Fox has often described herself as a bit of a you know guy's gal in terms of her friends and her the people she, she hangs out with. But, you know, sometimes it's it's nice and it, and it feels almost unusual to be if you're used like I am to working with a lot of men. It feels unusual to actually work with women. You're like, oh, this is different. <laughs> yeah. This is weird. Ooh. <laughs> you know? um, so. So, yeah, I'm, maybe that is part of it. Maybe it is just the, the sort of the sheer novelty of getting to work with another actress on really interesting, weird scenes that you haven't seen a million times before. I can totally relate to what you're saying about working with men because that's pretty much, that's been my experience as well. Mm. Literally, men everywhere <laughs> cannot get away from men, which normally I would not complain about. <laughs> but when you're in a professional capacity and you're literally surrounded by them, you know, sometimes... Sometimes it can be a little bit overwhelming. Yeah. And it is. it would be a novelty for me mm. to have another woman uh, in my department at work. It, that, that would actually be, I think, quite nice. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's never happened. So I can, you know, using your example, I can actually understand how that would be perhaps a considerable change of pace when you do have a female writer and a female director calling the shots as well. Yeah. Because like you've said, the rarity of that even in today's cinema mm -hmm. to have two female leads a female writer and a female director all working on the same movie it always kind of makes me think you know that this this feels like an anomaly but it shouldn't no. feel like an anomaly no, it should not even though you've obviously mentioned the horror genre and everything like that it sh it shouldn't be that we're making a point of saying oh you know and this is a female director and a female writer and two female lead stars you know it should just be the norm yeah, absolutely. It should... can you imagine <laughs> if we said if we noted that every time it was a comparable number of men on a film can you imagine how boring it would get if we said, and this is actually this is entirely produced by men and directed and written by other men and you won't believe this they also had a male cinematographer and a male composer so I mean, it was really, that's remarkable for, for male representation, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, male representation is sorely in need at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons why. Although, like you, I wouldn't say that I completely adore this mm. movie. I, it has grown on me. Mm. From that first time I watched it and I thought, I'm not really keen on this. And then I watched it again and I thought... Actually, this is this is something interesting. Yeah. I I think there's something interesting in here. And then I've watched it a couple of times, and it's it's since been released on Disney Plus. Mm -hmm. um, so it's available to everyone who's got a Disney Plus subscription. And I've watched it a couple of times on Disney Plus. And every time, if I feel like it's growing on me more and more every yeah. time I watch it. Yeah, yeah I, I, and, I agree. And yeah. it's not often that that happens. Mm. And I think it is the sign of a of a really quality film that is just a bit off kilter a lot of the time. You know. Um, I, I do think, like, I think I'm, I'm still trying to think of, like, kind of understand why I didn't immediately kind of glom onto it. Like, I kind of almost feel I should. Um, 
I think, I, okay, I will say one of my pet hates with horror and with female heavy horror, um, which you also see in Ginger Snaps and uh, Dog Dog Soldiers, is making periods part of the horror. I think it's an easy go-to mm-hmm. because um, men are terrified of them and, and horrified by them. And therefore, it's something that if you're a, a writer going into pitch a story, they can immediately understand. Um, and of course, there's, you know, blood, full moons, all this kind of stuff that, that, that kind of feed into horror tropes. Um, but but that's one of the things where I, every time I see it, it made me slightly roll my eyes around this time because those two films had come out not that many years before. So I think that might have been one thing that slightly irritated me. Um, and again, I understand why they do it. I just don't love it as a trope. Um, and then I think the the movie for me didn't always make it clear what um, Jennifer's status was maybe in school. And I kind of wanted to delve into that a little bit because, you know, I feel like she's somebody who would be looked at with envy, with lust, with distrust. Um, and I wanted to kind of, we hear from her, but we don't kind of see so much how that works and how that affects her. I mean, they talk about, you know, there's that line where, where Needy kind of throws at her that, you know, yes, she would, she won some beauty pageant, but that was like two years ago and she's already passed it, you know, and, and she kind of walks through the corridors and people don't always stare at her. They don't always look at her in a way that, quite frankly, I kind of think they would if Megan Fox was in their yes. school. Even <laughs> if they saw her every single day, I kind of think they'd still stare. So... So I kind of wanted a bit more of that kind of exploration of her social standing and and get into that kind of, yes, it's a teen movie thing, but it's also kind of a human thing. And it would also help you understand when that status changes because her power changes as a result of this Mm -hmm. demonic entity. Yeah, almost a little bit like... A little bit of Mean Girls yeah, in Jennifer's body. And maybe they were (laughs) intentionally running from that, especially with the Amanda Seyfried connection. Maybe that's why they were kind of wary of doing that stuff but I do think it might have it might have helped certainly me I'm not going to speak for everybody else but it might have helped me a little bit and I think you know it it was something that's it's very important to the needy Jennifer relationship that there is an element of envy there and, and, and an element of distrust and an element of meanness on on Jennifer's part as well as an element of really relying on maybe um on needy and and you want yeah, I, I love the kind of meatiness and weirdness of that relationship and I kind of wanted maybe more of that as well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up actually because one of the things as I was reading up on Jennifer's body, Jennifer's body is, is seen as LGBTQ mm. plus representation, mm. especially the, the focal relationship between uh, Jennifer and Needy. Yeah. The relationship between them is, is almost like, you know, they, they need each mm. other. And then reading this article and then watching the movie, I started to pick up on these really kind of subtle things from Jennifer's mm. side that Jennifer was always really jealous of Needy's boyfriend yeah. and always used to kind of say quite mean things about Needy's relationship with this particular boy and that, you know, don't hang out with him, hang out with me instead. Mm-hmm. And when you're a teenager... And when you do hang out with other girls, sometimes you do have instances where you're like, oh, you know, don't don't hang out with your boyfriend tonight. You know, come round mine instead. And it's it's never obviously a, a anything kind of sexual. It's just literally hang out with me yeah, yeah. rather than your boyfriend. But 
I found that quite fascinating because I'm not LGBTQ, mm. so I probably would not pick that up. Was that something that you picked up on? Yeah, no, because there is, I mean, there is a kiss between them, isn't there? So I sort of, like, at least got it at that point. I'm not sure I was particularly, um, particularly... Um spotted it in advance i mean i think you know people joke that they're lesbian that they're lesbians just because they're good friends and that's just like mean girls being mean really isn't it in in high school um again this was something that when i first saw it, it kind of probably not confused me but i felt confused the issue because it, it seemed to be getting into that old cliche of oh you're not jealous of me you actually fancy me and I don't think that's always the case. I think it's possible to be just jealous of somebody for being beautiful. I don't think it means that you fancy them. I think you can absolutely want what they have without wanting to shag them. So I kind of felt like that was a little bit reductive when I first saw it. But, you know, I've read a lot of articles about it and, and uh, listened to a lot of, you know, LGBT friends about it who just see it as a really important film in the canon. And I've come to realise, obviously, that's me talking as a you know, straight cis person. And it is actually a very important thing that adds to the film for them and adds to the fact that this is not just about, it's not just about a sort of feminist revenge story. It's also about entire kind of sexual, sexual identity. It's about um, sexuality. It's about, um, taking down the patriarchy basically from within <laughs> and it is a really important film for a lot of queer film fans so so I kind of feel like my slight niggles about it are, are sort of stupid and <laughs> I should probably give them up so um so yeah but I, I just felt like it I, I really thought the envy part of this was going to be more important than it was and I don't think that's maybe what Diablo Cody and, and Karen Kasama and the team were going for um, maybe it just says a lot about me being jealous of all my beautiful friends. I don't know. Well, <laughs> this is the thing, because, you know, I do feel like the movie tries to comment on Jennifer's beauty mm. and basically kind of say, look, you know, the pressure is on Jennifer. She has to kind of keep consuming all yeah. of these young men in order to continue to stay beautiful. And it's really, you know, if you talk about real life, obviously... None of us are a hope going out and you know feeding on the flesh of of uh, young men every month. No, not monthly. But... I mean, six monthly. <laughs> yeah, you know, obviously. But a lot of women do feel a lot yeah. of pressure to invest in things like makeup and diet, Skincare, buy certain clothes, and skin, yeah. yeah, all of that sort of stuff to maintain a particular look. Mm. Because once you are kind of past that point of no return. You know, heaven forbid women turn 35, you know, and it's all of a sudden like downhill from there. Mm. But I do feel like the movie is trying to comment on the fact that there is so much pressure, not just on teenage girls. I mean, teenage girls get it probably worse than anyone, but, you know, and especially in today's society with like Photoshop. Oh, yeah. Instagram, uh, face Instagram and, yeah. pictures and, and all of that. I cannot fathom what it's like to be a teenager now yeah. with social media. But obviously, when I was that sort of age, kind of, you know, early 2000s, trying to remember how old I am now, <laughs> early 2000s, oh my God. Um, well, there was the internet, but there wasn't this kind of continued pressure. But we, we still have fashion magazines. Oh, yeah. you, you'd see like a skinny model in a fashion magazine and you kind of question, well, why don't I mm -hmm. look like that? 
and I think the movie is obviously trying to say something yeah. about the pressures that are on women. Oh, I think it does. Um, and it is something. I think it does that, that really well, actually. I think a lot of that stuff, I think, was really, really effective. Um, you know, the fact that, that Needy is telling Jennifer she's over the hill at 18 is insane but it's not it's not untrue I don't think if some women feel that way they absolutely feel that way um mm -hmm. I think you have um you know that scene of her sitting in front of the mirror putting on her makeup and just feeling shit about herself is really really horrifying and relatable and and something that I think everybody has probably faced at one point where you just don't like your face that day you know um yeah I think a lot of that stuff is is really really well done and I think you know, I'm not saying people would kill somebody every month to to look beautiful and young and everything else, but I feel like, you know, people would do, people would spend a lot. They do spend a lot. People would do things that are bad for their health and do daily around this planet. You know, people do a lot to be considered good looking enough to be desired in this in this world. And, and it is very very unhealthy it's really unhealthy it is incredibly distracting from you know the world and the rest of the stuff you should be doing you know uh, politicians have uh, hillary clinton actually has talked about this kind of uh, extra work that they have to do like i mean look at you know ken clark or boris johnson or many male politicians literally don't have to brush their hair or shave properly mm -hmm. And they can be taken seriously. Well, maybe not in Boris's case. Um, <laughs> women have to be perfectly groomed at all points. Yeah. Or articles will be written about them. You know, and and mm -hmm. it is it is an insane level of personal grooming that is expected and demanded and that you are castigated for not upholding. And it is not vain or um unreasonable of those women to worry about this stuff because they are absolutely judged on it and there are absolutely real world outcomes to not brushing your hair or not shaving under your arms or not matching your dress to your shirt that coat that day you know uh, these yeah. things have real world consequences for women in a way that i don't think men understand i don't think they have any concept of how much pressure is put on women in the public eye to look a certain way. Um, and of course, look, um, it's not all put on by men by any means. Women are incredibly bad about this stuff. I mean, yeah. you look at all those, you know, the magazines, you know, putting on sort of celebrities caught, I don't know, with smeared mascara or something. And it's, it's horrific. It's horrifying. It's beginning to get a little bit better, but it is still so, so toxic. And... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. The, the sooner we can get past it, this this particular beauty standard, the better. It's it's a horrifying, horrifying moment that we're in. Yeah, it really is. I just want to finish our discussion, and I want to talk about specifically the the recent reevaluation of this mm. movie, uh, especially in the light of the Me Too movement, mm. because I think obviously there were whispers in Hollywood for a long time about certain people in power, um, let's be honest, certain men in power yeah. uh, who were abusing that power and they were mainly abusing that power with young female uh, actors. Yeah. Or, or young women, basically. And, and obviously all of this has since come to light and people like Harvey Weinstein mm. have, have faced uh, a certain level of justice 
uh, for the things that they've done. Obviously, there are still so many people, I think, who we don't know about, who, you know, it will come out eventually. I don't, I think that they should be running scared, to be honest, because I feel like all of this is going to come out if they've ever had anything to do with, you know, grooming young girls or the casting couch or, or anything kind of like that. But one of the things that really kind of spoke to me on recent rewatches of this movie Mm. was the movie is called Jennifer's Body. Mm -hmm. And you could take that as the fact that, oh, because Jennifer is incredibly beautiful, you know, she's a popular girl at school. But I kind of took it that, as with any woman, you know, her her body is her own. Mm -hmm. And her body is is violated Mm -hmm. by this particular band who decide to they well they decide to sacrifice a virgin so they can become successful and you know tour and have a top 10 hit and all of that sort of stuff and it seems it seems ludicrous that what would you do to make it big mm. in your chosen field i mean <laughs> i'll be honest i wouldn't sacrifice the body of a virgin no. to make it in my chosen field no no um, i wouldn't <laughs> and my lawyer but advises me to add that I haven't so <laughs> <laughs> yes as does mine um but but I do kind of feel like this is um this is a serious violation mm. of a young woman who was basically pretty much taken against her will and she was sacrificed in such a way that her her body was violated yeah and her body then and becomes the vessel of this demon rather than necessarily yes. herself yeah I just kind of found it quite prescient, Mm. especially uh, when we are talking about all of the horrific, terrible things that have happened to women in the film industry who were put in a situation where they had no choice. You know, they couldn't they couldn't leave. Mm -hmm. They felt like they had to do certain things to, you know, to these uh, certain people in power or else. It feels like this movie addresses that in a way that a lot of movies probably wouldn't address it yeah I think because it's coming at it from a female point of view you know in a way and I think it makes the distinction in itself between um you know frankly sleeping around which is what Jennifer does and revels in and has no problem with and has no guilt about quite rightly and then being put in this position where you have no choice and you are essentially kind of she's not raped per se but she is violated um in a in a sort of you know metaphorically similar manner, so I think yeah. there's there's a definite parallel there, and there's an attempt to draw a clear distinction, which many men refuse still to draw between, you know, well she's had lots of boyfriends, so she can't really have minded kind of nonsense, um, and, and kind of make it clear that no, there's there's a line where you s- cease to consent to something, and it and it is very very important line, and it is not. A grey area, ultimately. It is not a blurred line. It is a very clear line. And you have to be clear on that. And I think, you know, Hollywood has always had this weird relationship with the casting couch in particular, where it's been a a joke. It has been absolutely been a joke. It has absolutely been laughed off. It has absolutely been treated as unserious. Um, It's been treated as the price of doing business. No big deal. Put on your big girl pants kind of stuff. And that's really f***ed up. That is really, really messed up. It is so completely wrong. And it was it was like this wake-up call in October 2017 when it all started to come out that people suddenly went, yeah, oh, wait, that is super duper wrong. That couldn't be wronger. 
And but it was like a revelation. It wasn't like it, it was like people had never heard this before, never realized before that this was sexual assault, that this was rape, that this was violence, that this was abuse of power. It was like everybody, not just, you know, Hollywood itself, but like in the wider world, everybody seemed to wake up to that for the first time and sort of go, yeah, I can see that that's wholly inappropriate. Oh, I realise that your job shouldn't depend on either succumbing to or avoiding the advances of a powerful man. I understand now that that's not a reasonable position for anyone to be put in. And But it, I, I can't explain it enough, but it just felt like the world as a whole hadn't got that message before. We realised there was such a thing as rape. We realised there was such a thing as sexual assault. We were beginning, it, it feels like after 25 years, to get people's heads around the idea of date rape and things like that. But it, it people still didn't see the casting couch as anything other than a joke and, 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 a, and a kind of a mm. punchline for one. And, and it really suddenly became clear that oh no this is this is deeply deeply wrong and it always has been it's always been wrong why didn't anybody say so before and of course people had of course yeah. people had but people weren't were just laughed off you know and, yeah. and and there was a certain kind of momentum that the me too movement had there was a certain weight that it seemed to pass it was basically when that when that first article came out i was like i mean this is horrific but it's going to blow over. That was honestly my initial reaction. This is this is horrible, but nothing will really change. I've read articles like this before. I, I read a lot of you know feminist links on the on the, on the internet. Um, I I didn't I didn't believe it could change anything. What what changed my mind was seeing over the next few days and weeks and then months, woman after woman after woman coming out and basically saying me too. And that had never happened before. It was it was seeing the Gwyneth Paltrow's come out and say me too. It was seeing the Angelina Jolie's come out and say me too. The Salma Hayek's, the Lupita Nyong'o's. These are women with absolutely nothing to gain. You know, this is not the sort of model who wants to turn actress who Harvey Weinstein is able to paint as some kind of, you know, ladder climber or a gold digger. These are women with no reason whatsoever in the world to lie about this. And it was that solidarity between women that I think was a unique and extraordinary in, in Me Too. And I think that's what began to make the public wake up to this. I mean, as I said in the book, you know, um, Gwyneth Paltrow is one of the ones that shocked me because Gwyneth Paltrow, her father, Bruce, was a really, really successful TV producer. Her mum obviously was a really, really successful actress, still is. Her godfather is Steven frickin' Spielberg, right? So she gets in trouble in Hollywood. She can call Spielberg. And yet Harvey Weinstein made a creepy pass at her. Mm. That speaks to a man who absolutely fears zero consequences to his actions ever. That's, yeah. that's extraordinary. And, and that's, that's not someone who just preys on the weak. That is someone who thinks everyone is weaker than him. And that's that was a real kind of part of the wake up call. Sim similar with Angelina Jolie, you know, John Voight's daughter, one of the fiercest women on earth. And he, he had no compunction on, in hitting on her either. Um, I mean, to, to imagine what some of these women have gone through, looking as gorgeous as they do. And with this cultural assumption that we have that, first of all, women are fair game. And second of all, in particular, actresses are fair game. There is no question in my mind that Megan Fox has 
you know, just up close and personal history of being creeped on by powerful men throughout her career. And it is there is no question in my mind that that has harmed her career um, because it, it, it couldn't not. Being seen as that much of a lust object hurts women. And you may think, oh, women are, you know, using their sexuality against poor, weak, helpless men. It, it is not the case that that it's never that simple it never has been in the biggest femme fatale in the world it has never been that simple um every woman woman who successfully uses her sexuality and is and is gorgeous and is desired that is a double-edged sword and it always has been and there have always been dangers and threats and assaults and yes rapes as a result of that for for so many women and 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 I think the world lived in a kind of willful ignorance of that and I think me too began to change that mentality it hasn't finished changing that mentality it's still very much with us but I think it's a really important moment in changing that kind of psychology really of Hollywood and the world um, and just kind of to go on uh, back on the point that you made about the casting couch mm. and about how it was a joke. Yeah. Um, I did an episode recently on Toy Story 2. Right. Toy Story 2 had a casting yeah. couch gag. And it was removed only very recently. Um, f- uh, I believe it's removed on Disney Plus oh, no. now. Um, it's obviously still there on, on DVDs and, and all of that. But the fact that a Toy Story movie yeah. made a joke out of it in the b- blooper reel at the end... I think that kind of summarises what you're saying about how we viewed the, the casting couch before Me Too. Yeah. Because if a, if a movie that's aimed at families can quite happily make a joke about it, it was definitely something that people knew about. And it was always something that was kind of hush-hush talked about. Yeah. But it never... It was almost like no one's really talking about it, so it's not real. So it does... It, so it clearly doesn't exist because no one's talking about it and no and no woman is standing up and saying this is a problem and it's happened to me. Yeah. But I mean unless unless you're put in that position where you have a man in extreme levels of power like Weinstein mm-hmm. who could literally kill your career with a snap of his fingers. Absolutely. And did everything often. that you've and and did uh, I'm trying to think of um the name of the actress I'm uh, Mira Sorvino kind of, uh, he hurt her, her Mira career Sorvino, he hurt yeah. um uh, it was, uh, who were the two who were up for Arwen? And he told Peter Jackson off both of them. Mira Savino was one. I think Ashley Judd might have been the other, actually. I think Ashley Judd was another. I was, yeah, that's that's the yeah. name that I was thinking of, Ashley Judd. And literally, these are women who had, you know, the promise of stellar careers yeah. in Hollywood. Mira Sorvino, especially. She was an, an Oscar, Oscar winner, nominee, I believe. Yeah, a winner, yeah. Oscar, I forget. Honestly, um, I forget. She might, have won. <laughs> she might have won. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Oscar something. <laughs> She she was definitely up for an yeah. Oscar. Whether she won or not, uh, we we're, we're not entirely sure. But she she was an actress who clearly had uh, a stellar career in front of mm-hmm. her, and then she just disappeared, and no one kind of questioned. Well, what happened to her? Where is she? Yeah. But then looking back, you kind of have these instances where you have these incredibly talented women, and then they just disappear randomly, mm-hmm. and you look back and you think, well, it's an awful thing to think. But then you think, well. Could something like this have happened to this person? And Harvey Weinstein has taken it upon himself to, you know, essentially get get rid of this person in Hollywood. Yeah. I think um, I think often that was the case. You know, where is that '90s actress that you loved? Why did her career never take off? Well, it turns out she wasn't that picky about scripts. 
It turns out it was Harvey Weinstein is the answer. You know, in in not in every case, but in a lot of cases. And and you know, I've always been very skeptical of uh, people I hear about being uh, described as difficult. Um, but you know, it's it's a word that is weaponized against women. It is weaponized Absolutely. against women who speak out. Speaking out has never, ever helped an actress. I don't think in her career ever. I, I can't think of a single example and I you know wrote that entire book um, I, I don't think anyone has ever benefited from charging a man with sexual assault uh, I don't think any of their careers have ever lasted beyond that moment I mean you know some of the Me Too women obviously are, are still working thank God but that's only because they were still working beforehand um, mm-hmm. it luckily didn't affect their careers because of the extraordinary nature of Me Too itself but that's a best case scenario is it doesn't make it worse. And it is only in the 2017 round that that happened. I can't think of a single other instance. Speaking out is loaded with danger. Um, I mean, I I saw the last duel this week, the the new Ridley Scott film, and the situation has not changed since 1386, as, as, as portrayed in that film, where a woman faces being burned at the stake if she's found to have lied about a rape charge. It's pretty much the same. It's just the tabloids do it metaphorically now instead of literally. It always kind of brings me back, and I know we're going a little off topic, but it always kind of brings me back to Promising Young Woman Mm. about, you know, how a woman has to jump through hoops, essentially, to prove that something's happened. Whereas, oh, but, you know, boys will be boys and... Think of his career. Yeah, yeah, think of his future. You know, no one thinks of the woman's future. No. no one. And now, only with kind of the Me Too movement, are we now thinking about these women's mm. futures and, and what this has done to them and the mental anguish, the physical anguish, the emotional anguish that they must have gone yeah. through. Um, you, you just can't, you can't comprehend it. You can't fathom it unless you were in that situation. And, and God forbid, you know, anyone is in that situation because... Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't even know how I would cope and how they've coped and the strength that they have to come forward mm. is just it's extraordinary, immeasurable. Absolutely yeah, extraordinary. absolutely yeah. amazing. Um, so, so yeah, anyway, to kind of round this conversation off, there, there has been a re-evaluation of Jennifer's mm. body since the Me Too movement. And it, it's kind of, it has become uh, more of a cult mm-hmm. film. It's the sort of movie that I think people are actually now starting to appreciate. Yeah. I mean, I don't pay too much attention to, to film Twitter, I'll be completely honest. But probably was. I pop onto film Twitter every so often. And, you know, the amount of, of, of love and respect that's out there on film Twitter mm. uh, for Jennifer's body is it's one of those movies that I kind of feel like if Twitter was around in 2009, I think that most people would be very uh disproportionately harsh uh on this movie but now i really do feel like a lot of people have reevaluated it just with the passage of time yeah. and even myself like i say i think yeah, i, I understand it a bit more now mm, me too than i did yeah and i think i think I, I have more appreciation of what it's trying to do even when i don't like i say always think it gets there but i think it's it's very very well intentioned it's very well made obviously as well um but i i just yeah, I think I think it has it is beginning to find its time and I think I genuinely like I said at the beginning I do think it was ahead of its time I just don't think we were ready. And um I think now it feels much more of the moment and I think that the younger generations who are much more clued up than we ever were 
are really, you know, finding it and embracing it in a way that, that gives me hope for the future. Me too. And and that's kind of a, uh, well, a pretty perfect thing to, uh, well, I was going to say end on, but, um, <laughs> we're, but the episode's kind of not over. <laughs> <laughs> So what I like to do is I always like to link to Keanu Reeves in every single episode. It's just something that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very and um, good good idea. Yes, correct. So it's called The Obligatory Keanu Reference. Correct. Yes, and, and yeah, I like to try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And it's so difficult. It gets more and more difficult every <laughs> single time. And the only thing I could think of, and this is very, very tenuous, but I basically thought that Keanu Reeves is so respectful of women mm. Because he is mm-hmm. incredibly respectful of women, uh, just a lovely, wonderful man, yep. just all in all, and incredibly handsome, that I kind of feel like, firstly, he would never treat women ever the way that the band members do yep. in this movie. I don't think that Keanu is the sort of man who would routinely sacrifice a virgin to have a the successful career that he's had. Uh, I think he's done that literally by being a very nice person. Mm-hmm. And I also think that he would go John Wick on this band, uh, a bit like needy at the end. But I think, I think John Wick would probably get it done a bit quicker than needy. Um, yeah. I think it would just be like four bullets, bang, 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 done, <laughs> and that would be it. Yeah. Um, and that's that's probably the most tenuous obligatory Keanu reference I've ever done. <laughs> but it was how how else do you link Keanu to this movie? You 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 can't. Basically, it's uh, it's it's pretty much impossible. It's uh, that's um, difficult. Yeah, I can't think of anything better. I think you're right. I think that's <laughs> it. Keanu is in this movie just, is notable in this movie for absolutely being the antithesis of the guys in this movie. He's just so lovely and respectful to women. Basically, what we're saying is, men who are listening, don't be anything like the men in this movie. Be more like be Keanu. Keanu, it's just, just good just good advice for life, really, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. That's why he's got a segment on my podcast, because he is literally the best of men. There is no one better. I mean, the only (laughs) only other thing I can come up with, and I have been thinking about this, the only other thing is that visually, maybe in terms of being a teen movie with some dark patches, it's like one of his breakthroughs. Was it River's Edge? I'm just trying to remember the name here. River's Edge, which is the one that deals with... um, a, a high schooler who does something horrible and, and his friends have to kind of deal with the secret. Um, maybe that? That's all I got. Well, to be honest, firstly, I've never seen that movie, oh, so I probably should. <laughs> I probably should. But, I mean, I'll take it. <laughs> Helen O'Hara is given an obligatory Keanu reference. I'm going to take it. <laughs> Literally, you could have just said... Uh, Keanu Reeves was in high school once. He was, uh, I believe. I believe he was in high school once. Yeah. <laughs> I would have accepted it. <laughs> but um, uh, so I've, I've got like a load of like release financials and, and critical things to kind of go through. Jennifer's body was marketed to capitalise on the allure and sexuality of Megan Fox, who was riding high on her starring role in Transformers two years prior, as well as the highly publicised lesbian kissing scene between Fox and Amanda Seyfried. The marketing, in many ways, attempted to alienate the young female audience that both Kusama and Cody wanted to appeal to. Cody would admit to arguing with marketing executives at the time. 
Jennifer's Body was released on the 18th of September 2009, where it opened fifth that week against other new releases, Clouded with a Chance of Meatballs, The Informant and Love Happens, all charting higher. Critics blamed the horror comedy genre for its apparent box office misfire, claiming that if it were a horror or a comedy, it would do better. Its R rating was also blamed. Slither was also blamed for this genre mix for its box office disappointment three years prior. Check out episode 117 for more on that movie. It was expected to attract a significant portion of young adult cinema goers and Diablo Cody had hoped to attract more women than the marketing might suggest. On a $16 million budget, Jennifer's Body would gross $16.2 million domestically and $15.3 million internationally for a $31.5 million worldwide gross. And critically, Roger Ebert called the film Twilight for Boys, which is grossly misunderstanding both A, Twilight, and B, the underlying messages of this movie, but okay. He did, however, enjoy the film and gave it a good review overall. Most critics, however, felt the movie was either fluff or exploitation. They objected to the titillating lesbian kiss and the fact that for a horror comedy, it was neither scary nor funny. In recent years, the retrospective critical consensus is that it's a misunderstood metaphor for teen angst, female sexuality and highlights routine sexual harassment against women and the unrealistic pressures that society places on women and girls. There are, unsurprisingly, no sequels to Jennifer's Body, but a comic book tie-in to the film, a graphic novel by Boom Studios, expands on the film's universe and Jennifer's murders of the boys. It was written by Rick Spears, with the first nine pages illustrated by Jim Marfood. Two covers in Fox's likeness were designed, one by Eric Jones and the other by Frank Cho. The novel was released in August 2009. It features less of Jennifer than the film, but does capture her going in for the kill several times. It focuses heavily on following her soon-to-be victims and provides information on their personalities not elaborated on in the film so that readers can better conclude whether the boys deserve to be murdered. The novel consists of four chapters with a prologue and an epilogue with art provided for each by different artists. Each one follows a different boy and what is happening in his life just before Jennifer kills him. Helen... Thank you so much for coming on this podcast and talking about Jennifer's body. Um, it's been a genuine delight to have you. Oh, thanks. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. And um, do you want to take a moment to let the listeners know what you do, uh, <laughs> what books you've written, what podcasts you're on and where they can find you? Uh, sure. Yeah. So I am on the Empire podcast every week and we also have a spoiler special channel where you can sign up for even more um, nonsensical content, which is what we specialise in. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Helen L. O'Hara. And yes, we have mentioned my book. It's Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film. And it's a kind of uh, history of women in filmmaking, uh, Hollywood filmmaking, obviously, uh, for the last hundred years. And just looking at why we are where we are with some of those stats I mentioned at the beginning. Why are there so few female directors? Why are female stars treated so badly compared to their male counterparts? And um, yeah, I've just gone through 100 years of Hollywood history and tried to draw out some of the key moments. So it's very much a kind of introductory history. I would definitely encourage you to go away afterwards, and hopefully, and read some more. If Hopefully you find some interesting stuff in there that you would like to know more about. But I've tried to look at past, present and into the future of how things are changing, how things are hopefully getting better, what still needs to change and, uh, and where we're going. So anyway, that's out now in the UK and Ireland and so on. Um, on audiobook, on ebook, on bookbook, 
um, and it will be out in the US and Canada in December. And um, just to say, it is a brilliant book as well. I do have a copy of that book. Um, It was one of those that I pre-ordered, and this is going to sound like a right uh, nerd now. I I pre-ordered it and um, I was so excited to get it. And it is, so honestly, uh, such a fascinating book because a lot of the stuff that you talk about is the stuff that I am so genuinely fascinated in you know not just from like a feminist point yeah. of view but just a general kind of cinema lover's point of view yeah um why women are treated and have been treated the way that they are is just i mean it firstly to me it's just it's ridiculous <laughs> i mean that that it's ridiculous that you have to write a a, a book about the fact that women haven't had it particularly easy uh, in Hollywood. One of the most fascinating things is that, uh, and obviously on your podcast mm. as well, which I also listen to, by the oh, way. Oh, I, yes, I, I should mention that. I sound that. like I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, you've got a podcast We, we do a podcast, yes. Um, I'm also doing a Women versus Hollywood t- sort of tie-in podcast. So I've talked to some of the same people, but mostly new people. So you can get kind of perspectives on the stuff that isn't just coming from me. So you, you're getting, I've got, you know, academics, historians, but also filmmakers and actors and... Um, just everybody I could talk to really who had an interesting perspective on the subject. So yeah, so we're trying to sort of summarise some of the big issues in the book um, in podcast form. So Women vs Hollywood is out basically wherever you get your podcasts now. And it's also really, really good. And it's, it's and also just to kind of fangirl out a little bit now, it's actually uh, taught me quite a lot about early Hollywood mm. because I don't really know a great deal about early Hollywood but the fact that women were actually quite prevalent in the early days of Hollywood, it kind of blows my mind a little bit that that there were yeah. female directors and female screenwriters and and that they were so prevalent. Yeah. And then they weren't there they anymore. Weren't there anymore. Yeah. <laughs> One of the highest paid directors of the 1910s, and not just during the war years, all of the 1910s, was Lois Weber. She was like the big director at Universal at the time. And, you know, the biggest stunt stars and action stars again of the 1910s were women. There were these whole series called The Hazards of Helen and The Perils of Pauline and The Exploits of Elaine. Um, So we've actually gone backwards, if anything, in some ways since those early days. So I've tried to look at what it was that forced women out and why that changed. And... uh, and yeah, hopefully get into a bit of the sweep of history. So we're not getting too bogged down in all of the, you know, this company owned this studio and then they sold it in 1937 to 37% share of this company. Like I've, I've tried to avoid all of that stuff um, and just look at the kind of the general picture of Hollywood and women. Yeah. Yeah. And it is genuinely fascinating. So people who are listening to this should absolutely 100% listen to your podcast oh, and buy your book because it's awesome. I think we're pretty much done. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. It, it genuinely has been so brilliant to have you on for this. And yeah, just just to talk about this movie and, and everything about this movie has been amazing. Thank you for listening. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Jennifer's body. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can help Verbal Diorama grow and be noticed by others by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. You can retweet or like posts on social media, or you can simply just tell your friends and family about this podcast. And the next episode of this podcast, and it was going to happen eventually, 
James Bond was always going to make an appearance on this podcast. It was only a matter of time. The first Bond movie featured on Verbal Diorama is going to be Pierce Brosnan's first outing as the legendary spy in 1995's GoldenEye, which propelled Bond into the 90s and gave many a millennial, myself included, their definitive version of the character. So I hope you'll join me next week for that episode. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. If you want to support this podcast, you can sign up to verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. As always, a huge thank you to the patrons of this podcast. Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Will and Jack. It's true. It's on the Wikipedia there is also a merch store at verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can go over to verbaldiorama.com and you can follow my work on filmstories.co.uk. You can buy copies of the magazine I write for and the online articles, a handful of which are written by me. And finally, I am going to eat your soul. Bye. <laughs>